pray about that. All right. But uh, thank you for that. What a blessing that is. Esther chapter 6 is where we're at while the young people are dismissed. Go back and uh, Evans will be with them this, after, uh, this uh, next hour and uh, teaching on their level. We're so grateful for that. Look at that great exodus. Wow. What a blessing. Esther. Esther chapter 6. I guess I should find it here eventually. probably want to do that. Esther chapter 6, we've been talking about uh, the book of Esther, going through the book of Esther in the last few weeks, and I just want to recap a couple of things this morning. In chapter 1 and 2, we saw that the Jews were living in dispersion in Persia, and the king got upset with his wife Vashti because she would not come and parade herself in front of him and his drunken friends, and so he banished her, essentially, and then he held wife tryouts for about a year, and uh, all uh, kinds of beautiful women were brought in from all over the empire. And of all those, he chose Esther to be his bride, a young Jewish girl. However, she did hide her Jewish identity. And uh, we are at, even to this part of the story, she has not yet revealed that she is Jewish. The first question that we considered was in moral and in cultural darkness, does God still work? And we know from this book there is a resounding yes to that question. God is still at work even when it seems like things are going badly. The last week, uh, last week then, we looked at the fact that Esther lived in a time like this. Paul Harvey said, in times like these, it helps to recall that there have always been times like these. And we live today in times like these. And so we challenged last week about making an impact in times like these. We can complain. We can moan, we can talk about how bad things are, uh, we can, or we can choose to have an impact in midst of dark times. Uh, you know, it would be good for God's people, instead of complaining about the darkness around them, to turn on the light. The Bible says, ye are the light of the world. So let's just turn on the light, and then it might not be so dark around us anymore. Mordecai asked Esther this question, Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And last week, that's the question we asked. Who knows but that God has brought us here for such a time as this? The choice is clear. We can complain or we can determine to have an impact despite living in times like these. Now this week, I want to talk about, uh, as we move along in the story, in Exodus chapter, I mean, sorry, Esther chapter 6, we're going to start reading at verse number 1. And we'll get uh, to the cliffhanger we stopped on last Sunday uh, as we, before we uh, closed out last week. Oh, on the night the king could not sleep. On that night could not the king sleep, I'm sorry. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigatha and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, that sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servant that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman was come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said unto him, Behold, Haman standeth in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. And Haman came in, and the king said unto him, What shall be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than myself? Let's talk today about the cure for pride. 
the cure for pride. Father, I ask you to help us the next few minutes. We're going to talk much, and we're going to go quickly and cover a lot of ground, but I pray, Lord, that you'd help the just at least one thing to stick to us today and be a real help to us to be better. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we left, uh, we left off last week in our story. Uh, Mordecai had saved the king's life. We just read about that. The king's up at night. He can't sleep. And so uh, to get to sleep, he does what so many of us do. He gets a hold of a book. And what book to fall asleep would be better than a government book of records? Like if you got a book of tax code and read that, that will put you to sleep. And so that's what he did. He got this book, and they're reading it to him, and he realizes that of all the things that could happen, God's all over this and in the coincidences that happen. And so they come to the point about Mordecai saving his life, and the king says, do we ever honor him? No, king, we never, we never honored Mordecai. And uh, so the king's bothered by this, and meanwhile, if you remember at home, Haman is just furious because Mordecai won't bow to him and and so him and he's having a pity party with his friends and his wife there and they decide you know what we need to do to make an example of Mordecai hang him on the gallows and he had built big tall gallows and he's going to hang Mordecai on the gallows publicly shame him kill him to show everyone what happens to somebody who won't bow to me so that's what he's going to the uh, palace for this morning he's going to find out uh, or to go get a, an arrest warrant to kill Mordecai. The king is uh, just thinking about how he could honor Morde- Mordecai. And so we see these two forces about to collide. The king's over here. And uh, as he hears that, who's in the court, he says. And they say Haman's in the court. Haman's a perfect person to talk to. I'm going to go talk to Haman. So he's heading to Haman to find out how they could honor Mordecai. Meanwhile, Haman's over here on the other side. He's heading to the king. And he's he's about to ask the king for permission to hang Mordecai up on a gallows to kill and murder Mordecai. So pretty pretty interesting scene, isn't it? What happens next? Look at verse 6. Haman came in and the king said to him, What shall be done unto the man who the king delighteth to honor? Oh, all of a sudden, everything changes. Mordecai's anger, or I'm sorry, Haman's anger dissipates a little bit. And uh, he uh, has a new prospect to deal with. Because after all, look at what it says. Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than myself? He does some lightning fast calculations in his head. The king wants to honor someone. Who's more deserving of honor than me? That's that's how many people think, isn't it? See, Haman was filled with pride. In 1542, Nicholas Copernicus unveiled his discovery that the earth revolved around the sun. Brother West was there for that. It shocked him. Uh, I'm sorry. It's been like two Sundays since I've picked on him, so I just had to do one today. Uh, But Nicholas Copernicus unveiled his discovery that the sun uh, did not revolve around earth, but the earth revolved around the sun. No, no, not to proud people. No, no, to proud people, the earth revolves around them. They are the center, and everything revolves around them. And here's uh, Haman, and he thinks to himself, the king's going to honor someone? That must be someone really special. Someone like, like me, for instance. And uh, Haman here in the Bible is a vivid case study for everything that the Bible says about pride and humility. And it's, it's about what happens when people let pride go unchecked in their life. And this is important 
Because pride is at the base level of so many problems in our life. And I promise you, if you listen today, you take a good look at this, this could quite literally change the course of your life if you listen to the message that we have this morning. I want to talk, first of all, three, three points I have today. The first is the character of pride. The character of pride. Look at uh, verse number, or, or, you don't have to turn there, but in, all the way back in chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says that Hazuerus the king promoted Haman, the son of the, or, or Haman the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So Haman had been put in a big position of authority. Essentially, he was the prime minister. And there's something else here, because Haman must have been a, well, we see he was, but uh, we, we, can, we know he was a particularly obnoxious person. Very, very stuck on himself. So there's something in this verse as well I want to point out, chapter 3, verse 2, because in hierarchical societies, bowing is instinctive. In traditional societies, you bow to somebody who's older than you. It's natural to bow to somebody who's of a different stature than you, a social stature than you. Uh, but Haman must have been exceptionally obnoxious if the king had to command people to bow to him, which he actually did do. Look at what it says in verse 2 of chapter 3. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. I'm promoting Haman. I don't know if Haman told him or asked him, King, thank you for this position. Could you make sure everybody bows to me when I walk around? I mean, it's only, it's only right. And so the king commanded everybody to have to bow to him. Now, one man wouldn't do it. A man named Mordecai who believed in the living true God, and he believed that you don't bow to anybody but God. And so he would not bow, and we've already talked about this at length. But I want to ask the question today, why did this bother Mordecai so, I mean, uh, Haman so much? Why? He's the top cop. Nobody's, not one guy's not going to take away his position. Everybody's bowing. Why did it bother him so much that one person wouldn't? And what was so galling to Haman is I think it was a reminder of what Haman already knew in his own heart. In spite of his great power and position, he did not get the respect of the people that he thought should go with that position. Look at what he said in chapter 5, verse 13, after Mordecai wouldn't bow to him, and his wife reminded him, you are the top guy. You were invited to a two banquets with the king and the queen, just you. You're an important individual. And yet he said, yet, in verse 13, yet all of this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So he was furious. And this tells us a great deal about pride. Pride in the Bible is a concentration on self, total absorption on self. Now, I'm going to begin this morning by proving that you have pride before we start because we don't want to be thinking about uh, other people here and, and uh, it, let's always, it's always good for us to say, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, amen? So let's prove that you have pride and that I have pride. Let's imagine you are in a group picture, maybe a family picture, or even a, a, a employee picture with work or something. And uh, in this picture, there's a there's 50 people. Let's just make up 50 people in this picture, and you're in the in that picture as well. The picture comes out. They disperse it among the people. You look at it, and you look. Who do you look at first? Help me out. Yeah, of course, because we're proud. You look at yourself first. Not only are you proud to the point you want to see yourself first, 
You go a bit further and you, you, you basically judge whether it is a good picture or not based on you. Because if your eyes are closed or your mouth screwed up or you're talking or something's wrong, you say, oh, that's a terrible picture. There could have been 49 perfect smiles on 49 perfect people. But we say, that's a terrible picture because one person, me, wasn't looking right. I'm just saying, folks, we're naturally proud. We're just naturally proud. So all of us, as I prayed earlier, deal with this on a certain level. Pride makes you make everything about you. Pride is a relationship killer. Pride is often the longest distance between two people. It kills relationships. Uh, Pastor Forsberg and I were talking about this the other day when it comes to errant children or children that go uh, do things that I wish they wouldn't do or make choices I disagree with. Uh, some people get so upset about the choices their kids make because it makes them look bad. A lot of preachers do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be selfish to that point uh, to where I'm at the center of it. Uh, but it's hard to do that because naturally we're prideful. Pride turns everything into a means to an end. You do not do anything for a greater purpose than for you. In other words, you don't even do it for the purpose of what you're doing it for. You do it for you. It is always a means to an end of getting respect and approval. That's why Haman gets no satisfaction from his accomplishments. He wants people to think highly, as highly of him as he does. He wants people to respect him. He wants people to approve of him. See, pride is always ego calculation. Constantly uh, adding things up. Always evaluating and looking. Am I getting enough thanks that I deserve? Or am I getting the recognition that I deserve? Am I being appreciated? How does this make me look? All things are about one thing. It's about me in pride. Everything is connected to that one thing. And we all suffer from this. Let me make a statement and see if you don't identify this with this at all. A gossip is someone who talks to you about others. A bore is one who talks to you about themselves. A brilliant conversationalist is one who talks to you about you. Am I right? Look, hey, it's all right to admit this, okay? We all like that, don't we? You know what your favorite subject to talk about is? You. You know what my favorite subject to talk about is? Me. That's everybody's favorite subject. Uh, I've read, read, reread, reread, and reread the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. That was a lesson. I think I read it for the first time when I was 16 years old, and it was a lesson that was driven home. People, uh, if you want to be a good conversationalist, talk to people about them, not about you. But, because, but it's natural. We want to talk about us. Pride is a concentration on the self. With that in mind, there's two forms of pride I want to talk about this morning. Number one, the superiority form of pride. This is the kind of pride we recognize as pride. This is the Pharisee standing there, oh, Lord, thank you that you didn't make me like that guy. That's the superiority form of pride. And we, ex we usually see that in other people. This is the guy who really believes, he really believes if he'd have never been born, the whole world would wonder why. We'd all miss him if he'd have never been born. He is God's gift to women. He is God's gift to his career. He's God's gift to society in general. He's God's gift to the church. Wherever he goes, he's God's gift to those people. 
They're always promoting themselves and comparing themselves with others. They're obsessed to how other people see them. That's the superiority form of pride. But wait, there's another form of pride, the inferiority form of pride. This is not so quickly recognized, but this pride is where you're down on yourself. You don't like yourself. You don't like how you look. You don't like... Uh, how, like how you're doing what you're doing. You're very self-conscious, always beating yourself up. And don't miss this, it's important. You're just as absorbed in yourself as the person is who's superior. But this way it's inferior. You're still comparing. And we don't generally think of inferiority people as proud, beating themselves up, still doing the comparisons. They're just not faring better. Like the superior thinks... I'm better than that, I'm better than that. The inferior thinks I'm worse than that, I'm worse than that. But it's still comparisons. It's still focused on self. And the biblical definition tells us they absolutely are proud. You see, if we really understand humility, the Bible idea of humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. That's real humility. It's not being obsessed with approval or respect and how you're treated. You do things for the things just themselves. You, you're not, uh, it's not all about you if you're humble. If you've ever really met a, a, a really humble person, you ever meet a really humble person, you don't usually walk away from that thinking, man, but they are so humble. <laughs> That's not usually our first impression. We remember they were happy. We remember they were interested in us. Uh, we remember they weren't always thinking about themselves, but because all that ego calculation is gone, they're relaxed, they're encouraging. Truly humble people are others-focused, not self-focused. That's the character of pride. Let's look secondly at the deadliness of pride. If I may drive this point home today, friends, pride is deadly. It's deadly. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down to him, he was enraged. To kill Mordecai was not enough. No, no. He had to go after, not only after his family, after his people, his whole race he was going to go after. That's how angry he was. To, uh, to, he goes to the king, tells him about a group of people who he said were traitors. And he says, if you give me the permission to slaughter these people, I'll bring all this money into the king's treasury. And the king foolishly says, go ahead and gives him his ring of authority. And he doesn't even try to find out who this group of people are. So Haman makes a law. And the law of the Medes and the Persians uh, was completely irre... irre uh, could not be undone, okay? Could not be undone. Big words are hard for dumb people. In one year from that time, the Jews, uh, the neighbors of the Jews... Anywhere in the empire, basically the season opened up on the Jews' hunting season. They could kill them, they could plunder them, take everything they own. And we find out, though, at the end the Jews were saved. We see that at the end of the book. But thousands still die. Haman's going to die. Pride is deadly. Pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride leads to devastation. Pride is deadly. Let's look at a few ways. Number one, pride makes you a fool. Pride makes you a fool. Pride keeps you from ever learning from your mistakes because you're always self-justifying. And if it's not your fault, if you did nothing wrong, then you can learn nothing from the, uh, the situation. A proud heart always justifies itself. 
when a relationship fails, when a job doesn't work out, when accidents happen. When you have a car accident, one of the reasons that you call the police to come out and make a report is simply to find out who's at fault. So you can give that to the insurance company. Because two people can have, the in two different cars, can have an accident, and the same accident, both get out of their cars, and neither one of them claim fault. They both say, it's not my fault. It's their fault. It's society's fault. Uh, it is a... It is, it is circumstances fault. It is everyone but me. Pride does not look at self. Therefore, prideful people can't learn from their mistakes. And so, pride makes you a fool. Proverbs 26, 12, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. C.S. Lewis said, pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of common sense. Prideful people don't learn. You see, humble people aren't obsessed with themselves. They can recognize their own weaknesses. Humble people can even laugh at themselves. They can make light of, of their own mess-ups and mistakes. As a result, they learn and they grow. When something goes wrong, they look for what they've done wrong. Even if it's not their fault, maybe it was a little bit their fault, or maybe there's something they could have done differently, and so they learn from these situations. Humble people grow. Proud people don't. Proverbs 11.2, When pride cometh, then cometh shame. Why? Because you don't learn from it. You just get shamed. With the lowly is wisdom. Proud people do not learn from criticism. They just resent criticism. One of the best ways to grow as a person is to hear and apply criticism. You, you know that to be true. If we can correct, correctly process criticism, it can help us grow as a person. But with the disability of pride, when someone criticizes you, you simply dismiss them and attack them. Because a proud person cannot learn from their mistakes. Then the Bible calls them a fool. They constantly make bad choices. They choose the wrong jobs. They date or marry the wrong people. You see, the superiority of pride makes you overestimate your gifts. And the inferiority of pride makes you underestimate your gifts. As a result, you're constantly making miscalculations with your life. You're making the wrong moves, and we're constantly making wrong choices, bad choices, just like Haman does here. So pride makes you a fool. Secondly, pride makes you evil. Pride makes you evil. Pride is what made Lucifer the devil. He made It made him evil. Pride is more than just one sin among many. Pride is at the root of all of your sins. Pride, if you will, is like a satanic petri dish. It grows all kinds of nasty things in your life, like bitterness. Some people struggle much with bitterness and anger toward things that people have done. There are many people whose lives are ruined today by anger but remember this, you can't be bitter at someone unless you feel a little superior to them. There's no bitterness without pride. Oswald Chambers said the pride is the sin of making self our God. And so follow me here, when we do that and our God now gets attacked, which is self, when somebody attacks our God, the result is bitterness. Bitterness grows in the greenhouse of pride. 
but grace makes people humble. If your life is distorted by anger and bitterness, pride is at the root of it. This may be a good place to remind you that I'm your friend. I want to help you. I don't want to hurt anybody. I want to help us, amen? But sometimes we need some medicine, and this is some medicine here from the Bible. Uh, I suffered through this before you had too. I'll just give you that, okay? How about fear? Many people are paralyzed by fear and by worry. Why? Because you're sure you know what's best. You think you know how life should go. We all do. I say you, I'm including myself. If this doesn't happen, we get upset about it. Why? Because we know exactly how things should be. We just know. And by the way, to do that, that takes a lot of arrogance. That takes a lot of pride for us to think we know how things ought to go. Instead of trusting God who knows all. You can't be filled with fear without being proud. You can't be filled with bitterness without being proud. Let me give you number three. And this is another truth that we need to recognize about pride. Pride is a sin that hides itself. Pride is like, is the carbon monoxide of sin. It's killing you without you ever realizing it's doing anything. It's odorless, if you will. By definition, the more proud a person is, the less proud they think they are. Why? Because pride hides itself. It hides itself well. You know when you're committing adultery. All right, you don't just one day, whoa, you're not my wife. All right, you know when you're committing adultery. You know when you're embezzling money. You don't log into the bank one day and on your online account and, whew, where did that $100,000 come from? All right, you know when you're embezzling. You know when you lust. You know when you steal. But you don't always know when you're proud because pride hides itself. Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Can I say that again? Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick but the one who has it. People very rarely recognize pride within themselves. I've been a pastor now for nine years, assistant pastor years before that, and I've counseled many, many people. I've never had anybody come in for counseling and say, Pastor, I need help. I need help with my pride. People don't recognize pride. You know, I have had people say they struggle with pride, and in my mind I'm thinking, you're one of the most humble people I know. That's not unusual, by the way, because humble people worry about their pride. If you're listening to the message today and you're applying this to yourself and seeing how to, that's humility, that's not pride. We all deal with pride in some way. And let me just illustrate that. Let me go a little further with this, and this might be a little painful, but let me show you how pride is like carbon monoxide. Now, because there's just us in here, we can be honest this morning, okay? Nobody's filming you, they're just filming me, but they're not, nobody's going to see you, so uh, you don't have to raise your hand, but I'd like you to just, in your mind's eye, maybe raise your hand. How many of you in here, while, we're, while I have been talking, have had some names float across your mind? Oh yeah, he's talking about Uncle Jack. Oh, I know somebody just like that like that one woman who met the preacher at the back door and said, Pastor, that was a wonderful message. Everything you said applies to someone I know. It takes a little pride. I'm your friend trying to help you. But it takes a little pride if at this point 
We've only been applying all of this to others. Humility takes these truths and applies it to me. Pride applies it to somebody else. Now, let me get move on here. Number four, religious pride is the worst kind of pride. Okay, we're all on the same page. Pride is bad. Amen? We agree with that. I think we've all we've made the case for that. What's the solution? Well, you need to obey God. You need to pray. You need to do the Ten Commandments. You need to read the Bible. On a certain level, yes, but to be honest, there's a lot of danger in thinking that way too. And to explain this to you, if you get somebody to be religious... They start to be good. They come to church. They study their Bible. They pray. They obey God. You know what this will do? To some extent, uh, religion will kill off lust. Religion can kill off materialism. Religiosity can make you look good. But it just makes pride worse. There's no pride like religious pride. Nowhere. Look at the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? Didn't care about nobody or nothing except themselves. In fact, when he saw, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine as a preacher of the gospel, a, a, a pastor, seeing a man completely broken with his sin, couldn't even look up and uh, in front of the temple there and just beating on his chest, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And a pastor, everything in the heart of a pastor makes you want to just come up and embrace and encourage and help a guy like that, not the Pharisees. The Pharisee was standing over here, <laughs> Lord, thank you for making me better than him. There is no pride like religious pride. And here's what religion will do. Religion will clean you up. Religion will kill off uh, some of the bad things. And uh, either, But the problem with religion is either you'll live up to God's standard and become a self-righteous Pharisee, or you will find that you can't live up to God's standard and you'll just feel completely crushed and defeated. That makes you still more self-absorbed. Hence, more proud. Remember the two types? We can be superior or we can be inferior. Either way, it's all about us. Either way, we're just we're focused on me. Religion can kill off all kinds of sins, but it is like pouring gas on a fire when you try to kill pride. It just builds up either in defeat or in victory. So what's the answer? And that's what we finish with today, the cure for pride. The cure for pride. At the beginning of the message, we saw Haman coming to see the king. Do you remember why? He is not just satisfied to kill Mordecai. He wants to humiliate him. He's going to kill him publicly. And so he's coming to see the king to get permission to string Mordecai up, not string him. What we talked about, that what that death was, it's a pole. It's not a hanging gallows. When they talk about hanging on the gallows, it's a pole that they impale a person on. So he's coming to king, the king to ask special permission to do that to Mordecai. But that night, the king can't sleep, and he remembers that Mordecai had saved his life, and he'd never been rewarded. So Haman comes to the king, and it's just as he's about to say, hey, I'd like to kill Mordecai, the king says, what shall be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor? Haman, remember, is proud. He is completely self-obsessed. He thinks, obviously, the king's talking about him. So he gives a fascinating proposal. We didn't read it. Let's do so. Verse 8. Chapter 6, verse 8. This is what Haman said. Let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that day, that they may array the man withal, 
whom the king delighteth to honor, and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. That's some kind of honoring, isn't it? Now, for a king to put robes on someone was more than just giving him a high position. If you remember, Pharaoh put his robes on Joseph in Genesis chapter 41. That was basically making Joseph partake in his authority. That was putting him second in command. If you remember, Jonathan gave his robes to, to, uh, to, to David in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and he was essentially saying, even though I'm the prince, even though I'm uh, legally the next uh, king, I want you to be king, and so I'm giving my robes to you because you are the one God has chosen, and I am allowing you to be the king instead of me. The, the robes are more than just saying I honor this person. Robes are saying I delight in this person, and I love this person, and that's why Haman is so excited, because if people out there see that I am loved by the king, someone like that, then they'll know my worth and my value. More than that, pride says, then I'll know my worth and my value. Feeds into my ego. See, that's what we all want. We want someone who we think the world of to think the world of us. That's we, we all want that. And in a minute, you'll see there's nothing wrong with that. We'll get to that in a minute. But Haman, as he's thinking, now, with all that, I'll essentially be in the king's place, in the king's clothes, and then everyone will finally know what an important person I am, what a big person I am, especially that no-good rat Mordecai who sits outside the palace. And Just then, the king says his next words. He had no sooner thought that than the king says, do that to Mordecai. And by the way, you're going to be that noble prince that leads him around and makes the announcement. Haman, aren't you excited? Can you imagine how, what a crash happened inside Haman when he heard that? He was high thinking, whoo, this is going to be great. And then, whoom, do that to Mordecai your absolute mortal enemy. The person who five seconds ago you were coming in here to get permission to kill him. Do it to Mordecai. Oh, the horror. Several things are happening here. Number one, Mordecai is about to be trampled into dust. Now he's going to be lifted up high. Now it's Haman who thought he was going to be lifted up high, but he is going to be trampled into dust in his own mind at least. Secondly, he can't possibly move against Mordecai now. His Everything he's planned is gone. Haman knows he's doomed. This is a total reversal. Haman has tried to put himself up and he's brought down. And can I tell you, friend, that's exactly what the Bible ha says happens every time you try to do that. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humbled. Matthew 23, 12. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And who he will humble himself shall be exalted. Lose your life and you'll save it. Uh, focus on yourself and you'll only find loneliness, anger, hatred, and despair and ruin. Focus on Christ and you'll find not only Him, but everything else will be thrown in as well. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Wow! What Haman was asking for is something that we all want. And I don't want you to miss this next part. This is really good. It's interesting, I was reading this. Remember we've said like five times, you don't find Christ, or you don't find God in Esther. You don't find Him mentioned. 
but you find him. We're about to find him real quick here. So Haman wanted what we all want. He wants someone of supreme importance loving him. We all want that. We want this ultimate assurance of who we are. Ultimate assurance of our worth. I'm valuable. We need someone that we think the world of to think the world of us. We need the praise from the praiseworthy. That's what we want. We want to be recognized. Can I tell you a truth here today? Haman did not ask for the wrong thing. It's a healthy desire. He didn't because what he did ask for is the same thing we are searching for as well. We want that validation. He did not ask the wrong thing, but don't miss this. He went to the wrong place is what Haman did. You see, Haman went to the wrong king to ask for these things. There is a better king. There is a king whose ultimate glory uh, was when he came to earth and stripped himself of his glory. When he went to the cross, he wasn't just stripped of the clothing that he wore, which he was. He was stripped of his father's love and approval. His father actually turned his back on him. Why? Because he was reversing places with us. Just like Haman. Haman reversed places with Mordecai, only that was involuntary. Praise God, my Savior uh, reversing places with me was voluntary. He is the ultimate king. Jesus Christ is the king that you can go to because at great cost, he chose to reverse places with us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. He exchanges places with us. He takes what we deserve so that we can get what we do not deserve. Herein is the gospel. That's exactly what the gospel is. He did for us what we cannot do. When you know that He loves you like that. When you know that He went through all of that for you, then and only then can you be self-forgetful. You can have rest. You can have peace. You don't have to try to go out and find that validation that pride so desperately tries to bring. You don't have to be out seeking for it. When you see God coming down and trading places with you, reversing the roles with us, To know that he had to die humbles you. Don't miss this. To know he had to die humbles you. To know that he willingly died for you fills that need for human approval. He not only died for you, he did so willingly. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. All the jockeying for attention, all that desperation to build yourself up, all the pressure that pride puts on us in our hearts and our lives, and pride tries to do this but fails. You'll never succeed with pride, but knowing what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us and knowing that He did so willingly gives us the validation, gives us the appreciation, and gives us the value and the worth that we're seeking for all our life anyway. Amen. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? And we can't find God in Esther. He's all over in this book. and He's all over in your life as well. Jesus Christ was strong enough to be weak. If you see Him doing that for you, you will be strong enough to be weak. Then you can learn from your mistakes. 
then you can have the right relationships. Then you not only do what promotes you, but you do things for the things themselves because they're the right things to do. And here's the kicker. This is where you make an impact. When, because now it's not all about you. Can I promise you something, friend? If it's all about you, you'll never make an impact on others because it's all about you. But as soon as it turns outward and now it becomes about others, you can make a huge impact. Lord, let me live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Others, Lord, yes, others. Let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I might live like Thee. Jesus Christ lived His whole life for others. He loved you so much that He was humiliated, suffered, and ultimately died in your place. And you're going to seek validation from looks, talent, worldly friends. They're going to leave you in a ditch anyway. You know what I'm saying? Why do we seek after those things when we've got it right here? All the validation we need, what pride cannot offer, He can. He can. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.